session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Afternoon, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Halakwi, and I'll be with you for the next two hours here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at that of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Again, our studio number 310. Four four one zero five five five. Didn't do a show Monday night, so we'll be doing the books of the week today. So the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show, or possibly Wednesday, I might have a guest on Monday's show, is Bittersweet by Susan Cain. Bittersweet, How Sorrow and Longing Make Us Whole. And Susan Cain wrote the book Quiet that I covered on the show a few years ago uh, about the power of introverts and how they're often misunderstood or how we live in a word that, world that's biased towards extroverts. And so uh, my brother Powerhome told me that actually she had this new book out and ordered it and looking forward to reading what she has to say on uh, how sorrow and longing makes us whole. So that's Bittersweet by Susan Cain. Uh, the book of the week for last week that I'll talk about today is also a repeat author in the sense that I've read a book from him before on the show, and that is A Brief History of Equality by Thomas Piketty. And this is also a book that had just come out in the last week or so. Um, it was supposed to get to me a few days later, I thought, and it arrived earlier, so I, I started reading it as soon as I could because I am a big fan of uh, Thomas Piketty and his book Capital and Ideology, which I read. It was really early in the pandemic back May of 2020 that I read that book and was very much impacted by it. So when I saw he had this book coming out, I was excited to get my hands on it and read what he has to say. And as he says in the beginning of the book, kind of the acknowledgments type of introduction, that many people told him they love his work, they like uh, his books, but can he write something shorter? Because uh, Capital in the 21st century and Capital and Ideology both are around a thousand pages long and so this book weighs in at about 240 something pages a little bit easier to get through and so he wrote this book to write something a little more digestible in that sense shorter but also to add some new ideas into there and to look at as the title uh, implies a history of equality from a economic perspective of the world and so he acknowledges um that we can be optimistic or we can recognize that progress has been made if we look at different things like life expectancy or levels of distribution of wealth they are better than they were let's say from 200 years ago 100 years later and from now compared to 100 years ago we do see an overall trend towards more equality which is good um, but as he points out this doesn't mean we should just think this trend is happening because it's just some kind of natural progression towards equality and that if we are not mindful we just will end up with more equality that's not the case and also when we look at the history we see there are some ups and downs so it wasn't just like 
a clear upward trend towards equality, not only that things like revolts and wars and different negative events at times contributed to more equality. So uh, we could also think of how if we aren't mindful of how we go forward, it's more likely for those things to happen. And what if we can create more equality without um, having to go through those things by being more mindful and creating it uh, proactively, in a sense, by making changes. So um, he does also say, and I totally agree with this, that at times, although we can recognize progress has been made, we don't want to spend too much time congratulating ourselves or focusing on that. And so I've heard this argument before where people say, well, you know, if you're complaining about, let's say, racism, or if you're complaining about um, inequality when it comes to wealth and that people are not doing well or poverty in the world, well, why aren't you recognizing things got better? And so I've heard this, it's a very much a straw a straw man argument of, well, you know, if you're saying these things, you're not recognizing that things got better, almost as if people are saying things are worse than they have ever been. So that's not most people's argument. You might find very, very small number of people who would say that. Most people who are not happy about those things, myself included, think that there's still a long way to go. And from an economic perspective, the way I've always thought about this is when we look at progress, we have to look at, yes, who is suffering, how many people are suffering in what ways, but we also have to look at our means, what we have at our disposal. So if I tell you about some small community of 20 people, and 20 years ago, 10 of them were starving, so half the people were starving, so that's very sad. Then we say now, 20 years later, only five of them are starving and don't have enough food. And we say, well, that's wonderful, 50% reduction in this kind of poverty or food insecurity or whatever you might label it, that sounds really good. But if you realize that back then, when only 10 people were being fed, we had 12 uh, you know, units of food, and so we're wasting a little bit, but now we have 50, and we still have five people who are starving when we actually have so much excess, that doesn't really strike me as progress or something to be proud of. So yes, acknowledge the progress, that can be good, but don't let that distract you from recognizing the grave inequalities that exist and the extreme potential we are wasting with that inequality where we have so much, yet some people have nothing or very little at all. So that's something to me is very important to keep in mind when we have these types of discussions. A very important point and really, I think, a central thesis in that book, Capital and Ideology by Thomas Piketty, was that inequalities have existed throughout history, these types of economic injustices, and there was always these ideologies that were given and provided to justify why these inequalities existed. So it wasn't something wrong or bad, there was some reason for it. So throughout history, for example, there was nobility or clergy, and in both cases, oftentimes they were somehow coming from God or related to God or had some special status that made it so that they, of course, have to have more. So it makes sense for most people to be poor and just a few who are these special chosen ones to be extremely well taken care of. Where the king, he comes from God. And so, of course, he should, how could you even question that he shouldn't have so much or have extra and that you have to work for him? This is the way it's supposed to be. And some of those things sound silly to us now, but we have similar things that have gone on throughout history where we still think, well, if some people are wealthy or poor now, it's because of good decisions only, 
and they made the right choices and they were responsible and all these things where we see that that is a very, uh, of course, it makes a difference the decisions you make, but there are much bigger factors at play, like the opportunities you have, the type of environment you grew up in, your parental uh, income or the poverty that you experienced yourself. So there is a myth of the meritocracy that we have now. Does it mean that nothing you do doesn't matter and how hard you work doesn't matter? Of course it does. But that when we think that any difference you're seeing is just based on differences in effort that has been put in or differences in ability, that is the mistake. And so a key tenet of this book, when it's talking about going towards equality, of course, Thomas Piketty believes that we should move towards more and more equality, egalitarian type of a worldwide society. And as I was reading the book, I, it did strike me that there's people that might not agree to that premise to begin with. They might think, well, why, why does it have to be equal or more equal? Maybe it's okay if some people have more uh, and others don't. Um, and of course, usually it's people who already have more who will go to that type of an ideology or thinking that maybe this is right, this is just. We also see this throughout history, that when things are unfair, when some group has some kind of privilege or some kind of an advantage, and when they start to potentially lose that advantage, they feel like it's unjust, uh, unjust or injustice for them to be losing that, when it's actually uh, moving towards more equality and more justice, which might mean that some people who had too much or had extra or had some advantage that really was not uh, supposed to be given to them or they did not need to have for any reason that they've earned it in any way. So they're going to feel like they're losing something, understandably, but it doesn't mean that's some kind of an injustice. The injustice is when people don't have to begin with for through no fault of their own. And so through the book, he traces different chapters um, about uh, different types of uh, important concepts, things like education come up now. Education is an interesting one because that's one of those things that tends to be seen as a great equalizer. So let's give everyone equal opportunity and then before that, equal education, which is part of that equal opportunity. But what we see is even in countries like the United States, where we have a, a good amount of wealth, we see that the income of the parents and their, their socioeconomic status has a huge impact in the types of schools their children go through go to from a very young age. He also shows that this is the case in Paris, where he is from in France, where he is from, Thomas Piketty, that the teachers, even the quality of the teachers, their experience, and then even how much they're being paid is different based on where you are even in the city as far as how wealthy or poor it is. So some children are just getting not as good of a quality of education through, of course, no fault of their own, but because of the family they're being born in. So education is this great equalizer. We see it's not the case. And so we have these ideals, but we very often fail to live up to them. And we have to actually look at them clearly to see what's going on. An interesting chart, interesting and also heartbreaking when you look at the unfairness, uh, I'm looking at it now. Uh, it's in the United States. When you look at the likelihood or the percent of people who attain higher education or who attend higher education, and it's essentially a straight line, like a graph uh, almost looks fake as far as how straight of a line up it is of the more parental income, the more the likelihood that you go to college. So that if your um, parents are in the lower income range, closer to the bottom, 
there is a close to 25% chance you go to college. But once you get to the highest levels of income, there's then like a 90% chance that you attend college. And it's practically this straight graph up um, that almost, again, looks fake in the sense that usually graphs have some ups and downs or it's not so much this type of a very clear correlation. So we see that even in the United States where we think everyone has a fair chance, an equal chance, they definitely do not. It is not the case. And so you have to accept this if you are in that privileged group. I know privilege has become very loaded over time because people use it as a way of putting others down or uh, ending an argument or a discussion by saying, well, this is about your privilege because you, so you don't understand this. And sometimes that can be true, but it's also being abused in that way. But it is the reality. There are privileges that we have experienced or we experience different individuals do that we have to recognize. And to me, it's not that we need to feel guilty about whatever those privileges are, but it is important to acknowledge it. And then once you've acknowledged it, to do a few things with it. One, to make the best of what you can. So you've been given these opportunities. So make sure you utilize that to the best of your ability, that you have these advantages to do good in the world. And then related to that doing good, secondly, to try to make sure others have those same privileges or that there aren't people who live in such an unprivileged type of way where they don't have those advantages to make a more fair and just world. Now, this book, uh, you know, I really enjoyed it so much because um, I, well, one, I must say I do agree with his thinking. So, of course, I'm going to, you know, agree with it or like it. Uh, but I think he does a good job of explaining these issues that are very complicated and breaking them down. And because of that, I do want to continue the discussion on the book to share some more thoughts and some more insights. So uh, after the break, I'll continue on the book, A Brief History of Equality by Thomas Piketty. We'll be right back. Welcome back. Continuing the discussion on the book, A Brief History of Equality by Thomas Piketty. So I'll mention this and, and then share a quick uh, kind of funny story that happened yesterday. So one of his main tenets and another one of the main things he's bringing up in the book is that we need to... Uh, and it's actually interesting because some of the words he uses... Uh, for certain political uh, parties can sound like bad words. Like he talked about the welfare state as a good thing. And of course, socialism. And he, he talks about a participatory socialism. Um, uh, socialism also can be considered a bad word to call someone a socialist here in the United States, which I, I think is quite funny. But nonetheless, um, but he's talking about raising the taxes, especially on the wealthy, having a very uh, strong progressive tax policy, meaning that the wealthier individuals pay a higher level of taxes or higher effective rate of their taxes. Also, taxing things like wealth uh, in general, capital gains and those things. So a lot of it involves taxing more heavily individuals. And as I was reading the book, I was, yes, all about it um, and very much in favor of that and thinking that is the right way to go. Uh, as I was getting to the last pages of the book, Yesterday, I got a call from my accountant who I'd sent all my financials to for, for the last year. And then he was telling me about how much I might owe. And of course, then I had this, like, ooh, like that's, you know, that obviously is, is something. And so it was this interesting moment of feeling like, yeah, well, there is a real experience that people have 
uh, when they're paying taxes or feel like their taxes are going to go up, um, that I can understand. And I don't want to avoid that or just be in some kind of a idealized mindset or worldview that it's so easy for people or feels okay uh, to do that. So that was an interesting moment for me, while at the same time recognizing that what we're talking about is for people to pay an amount to that they definitely can, they're going to be doing okay uh, to support or to make things more fair for individuals who don't have. And not only that, as he talks about, even in a global scale, the people who make more wealth, especially those who uh, use certain means of production and are more likely, let's say, use roads and use other types of infrastructure, they're benefiting more from what the taxes pay for in general. That's part of what allows them to build their their wealth. So um, it's not just that they're sacrificing in some way, there's some ways that it is more fair for it to be that way. So he, he suggests, as he did uh, in the book Capital and Ideology, and a lot of those same themes are in this book, um, higher levels of taxation, especially for the wealthy and the ultra-wealthy, even higher levels. And, and as he discusses, oftentimes, especially uh, Reagan-era types of economics in England with Margaret Thatcher, uh, there was this mindset that this is going to interfere with growth when the wealthy people get taxed too much. We need to actually reduce their taxes. That's going to lead to more growth and going to lead to, um, you know, all boats will rise when the tide rises or whatever that that saying is. And so basically these trickle-down economics and those types of things, which have proven to be very unsuccessful and not the case. And of course, when we look at any of these types of things, it's so complicated because there's so many variables involved. So he talks about the, the world wars and how impactful they were and changed a lot of things uh, economically. Um, but of course, those are big events. So if we look at something that happened right after that and say, just this policy is why things were different, we do have to be careful. But he does uh, express in his understanding of the statistics involved that we can have growth and had higher growth when we had higher levels of taxation for the wealthy, a progressive tax. So it's not the case that it gets in the way of growth, something that is often proposed by individuals who are against higher taxes. And another thing about that with taxation and raising taxes, at times people have this mindset that, no, you can't raise them. They're, they're, whatever they are is right in some way. Uh, or there's something good about them, which doesn't make sense in the sense that we realize these were created. We created these types of laws and rules and levels of taxation. And also reading a book like this, you see that things have changed. They haven't obviously always been the same, the same rate always. And so we shouldn't think of them as some kind of um, sacred rules or laws. They can and have changed. And so because we created them, we can create them to be different and to change that. So the idea that people sometimes have that, no, that would now be unfair or wrong if we raised taxes. Like, well, no, we've set these numbers and we've created them. They are man-made. And it reminds me of Nelson Mandela, I think, has a quote that is something on the lines of um, poverty is man-made. It is not something that just has to exist. Because I think people sometimes have this feeling that, well, you have to have some poor people. That's just how it is. And yes, let's say you don't have exact equality across the board. I don't think anyone would think that's possible um, to have. But it doesn't mean you need to have extremes of poverty, which we still have in the world and even in the United States and other wealthy countries. That's the issue. And we actually see that inequality has gone up in recent decades. So uh, that's that's to me the important point is that it's not that we're saying 
we should go to the extremes of, well, if you can't have perfect equality, who cares? Or the mindset of, well, life isn't fair, uh, which always gets me. Yes, life is not fair, especially the things that are out of our control. Unfair things happen. But we are responsible to create a more fair and more just world with the things that are in our control. So if I said here you have three pencils to give to three students for their class and you give all three to one and you say, well, life isn't fair. It's like that doesn't make sense. You can give one to each child. And so we have the same situation in the world where we have enough of things to make it so people survive and have better experiences of life. And I think it's up to us to make that happen, to make that a reality. We will not never achieve perfect fairness. Life will still be unfair, but we can make it less unfair. I think that's one of our responsibilities as individuals and as a society whatever our time period is, to make things more fair and just in the world, knowing that it will never be perfectly just, but moving towards that. You know, some shocking things can come up when you read uh, a book like this. And one that um, I read it in the Capital and Ideology and he talked about again in this book is when we see how sacred we can look at private property, one of the just heartbreaking and just disgusting displays of that is that often when slavery has ended in some region, in some country or some area, the slave owners were compensated for losing their quote-unquote property, which was human beings. So people had ownership of people, which was so wrong, it was ended because realizing how wrong it was at least one group did whoever made that type of decision but because still private property is seen as so sacred that we can't take it from you without you being compensated in some way even though it was a person we often see that the expectation and what ended up happening was that the slave owners were given compensation not the slaves who had just endured all this suffering of being slaves of having to be someone else's property and treated as such uh, but the slave owners it's it's just shocking you know every time I see that and read about that it's incredible to see that that was the case and even we see that Haiti um, had to pay to France something like three years of their national income um, when they were having independence that this seemed fair and and there's actually some people that think that uh, a repayment should be made by France. This was had to be paid over 75 years, and I think at some point France transferred that debt to the United States to get collected. Uh, you know, I, I don't remember the details, but that was described in the book. But we, it's just shocking to me that that's happened, and it has happened so many times. Um, and he also had a chapter related to that uh, about reparations, which is a very sensitive topic. Uh, people have very strong views about it. My view, when we look at the United States, reparations for black Americans, for people who experience slavery, is that we absolutely need to have reparations that are both financial in some type of clear way. Um, also, it relates to making changes in the systematic issues that are still at play where um, black Americans have worse opportunities and are more likely to experience poverty and a variety of, of issues. And through that, also some kind of an acknowledgement. So um, in this book, Thomas Piketty talks about the economic reasons why reparations uh, make sense. And he thinks it's right and how it can be done and even how we can go about trying to calculate it. Because one of the things that often comes up is that people say, well, how do we figure it out? How do you figure out who to pay? Uh, how do you figure out 
um, you know, how much to pay and all those kinds of things. And there's people that come up with those types of figures or, or study those things. Another thing is, well, we didn't do it or someone, you know, I didn't do it. So why should we have to pay for that? But the reverse is what is happening. Descendants of slaves or descendants who've experienced different types of discrimination because of what happened, continue to experience poverty and to experience challenges. So they are experiencing it based on the mistakes of the past. They continue to pay for it. They are paying for it still. So to think that you shouldn't, quote unquote, pay for it is saying that you're okay with them paying for those mistakes of the past. So we're trying to make things more right. Um, And so from the economic perspective, he expresses that very well in this book, as others have. Um, You know, this type of a book is very heavily cited and he has notes that are actually in the text itself on the bottom of the pages. And you see him refer to so many other books and texts related to the topics that are being discussed. Um, But for me also, from a psychological perspective, we can look at, which is in a way sociological as well, uh, looking at reparations is that if we don't repair past mistakes and past wrongdoings, we don't move on as well as we can and we don't have as healthy as a relationship as we can have. And so the analogy I can use is working with couples or, or families, but if we just look at a couple, in a romantic relationship, often things that have happened in the past that have not been healed, that the pain was not acknowledged, the wrongdoing was not acknowledged, and actions weren't made to repair, to create some kind of reparations for what has happened, they will leave a lasting negative effect on the relationship. And so people want to forgive and forget, or it was in the past, forget about it, move on. But we can't move on from the past until we've healed the past. And time only heals if we do the healing. So you can't break your leg and say time will heal it and go walk and run on it every day. It'll stay broken and it'll get even worse. If you want time to heal, you have to allow the time to heal, meaning you have to do the healing. Give it some time to rest or uh, repair itself, possibly see a doctor. Maybe you might need some serious procedures, whatever you have to do to let time heal. It doesn't heal by itself. So just because these things that we're talking about can be from a while ago, from some years ago, it doesn't mean we can't or don't need to heal them. Not only that, the effects are still there and it's still happening in a variety of ways. So um, I really appreciated that chapter looking at reparations. And also sometimes people think, well, we're doing something that's never been done before. That's not true. In other countries, for example, victims of the Holocaust have been compensated. Even here in the United States, Japanese Americans were compensated. Those who were uh, at the time of World War II taken to the internment camps, they were given a financial compensation. I forgot the exact amount, but it was a a large payment. Of course, you can never repay for what was done to them, but it's a way of, of course, acknowledging and apologizing. We can't necessarily make it right completely. You can never... And that's one of the reasons people don't do anything. They say, well, we can't change what happened. Of course not. But by taking some kind of action to repair what's happened, acknowledgement, apology, repair, you can make things better that you can move on forward in a better way. Of course, we can't change the past. It's what we can do about it that we want to to look at. And so as I conclude, uh, I really enjoyed this book. I'm very happy as I was reading it. Um, I enjoy the books most of the time, some books more than others, of course. Uh, but sometimes as I'm reading a book, I, I at times will essentially say to myself, either in my head or out loud, I'm so glad I'm reading this book. And this was definitely one of those. 
because I have strong beliefs, strong feelings about these issues of inequality, of a variety of issues that he brought up in this book that I have some knowledge about, but it's also a lot of strong feelings about, and I recognize that. And in reading a book like this, it helps you understand from a intellectual level, looking at the data, what makes sense as far as what we can do about those issues. And also, you will be challenged by people who believe differently from you, which is natural and okay when we want, we want to have debates. Uh, but you want to make sure you know your stuff. You want to know about it, not just, well, I feel like things are unfair. Let's make it more fair, which makes sense and is a very legitimate feeling. But where are you getting your data from or where do you understand how to get to a better place as well? And so in the book, Thomas Piketty describes his thoughts on how we can make things more equal. Um, going back to that analogy of healing, yes, time can make things more equal over time, but only if we do things, if we take the actions to lead to that equality, to lead that to that type of healing. And so in looking at A Brief History of Equality, the title of the book, it can help us glean some lessons of what we can do to continue on that path, what has worked and what has not worked, and what we can try to do. And as he mentions throughout the book, he offers types of solutions, but he includes that it's not that what he's suggesting is a strict guideline that he knows is definitely right, and what's important is for there to be a open debate and dialogue about these issues to come to an understanding, and then, of course, revisiting, seeing what's working and not, but we have to move in certain directions. Uh, also, he mentions the importance of climate change uh, when we look at economic issues, how often it's the ones who are the wealthiest who are doing the worst damage to the environment, but it's going to be the ones who are the poorest who will face the first and the most severe consequences. And that also is very unfair and unjust. So highly recommend this book, uh, A Brief History of Equality by Thomas Piketty. I hope you'll check it out. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So I was discussing the book today, A Brief History of Equality by Thomas Piketty. And one of the issues that comes up is status. When we look at wealth, wealth and equality, distribution, who deserves what. And we still have it in some societies more than others. Of course, in India, we see... Uh, talk more of a caste system, although I, from my understanding of it, it's evolving a bit and might not be as rigid as it once was. Also, the rigidity was likely influenced heavily by British uh, colonialism uh, as well. But nonetheless, just looking at status in general, when we try to understand who has what, and also gives us this sense of who deserves what, which is what I wanted to, to look at. And so in that book, Capital and Ideology, that I read from Thomas Piketty a few years ago, that was one of those big tenets, as I mentioned, this idea that there's always been injustice, but we try to understand what's the ideology being used to justify it, to somehow make it seem okay, uh, even right, even noble, even the good thing, or that things can't be any other way. And status is one of those things. And we see it still existing in many cultures, but myself being an Iranian and seeing it in the Persian culture, I see it very, very strongly impacting the ways we live our lives, how we treat others based on status in a variety of ways, and of course our own preoccupation with our own status. How do I look to others? How am I seen by other people? And so it 
it's easy to say who cares, no one should care. But we also want to try to understand where is it coming from to a degree. And so, of course, there is um, impacts of your status throughout history, even still, but especially before, where your status would be related to who you could mingle with, who you could marry, what types of opportunities you would have economically, occupationally, socially, in a variety of ways, and how you would be treated or mistreated based on your status or lack of status. So we can see that it's had this uh, a significant impact and it brings up these feelings to us. But I think it's important to try to understand what does it mean and, and why do we care and why should we continue to care if we should care about that. Because if we look at what status implies, it's essentially this sense that because of who you are, and by who you are, I mean where you came from in a way, you either deserve or don't deserve certain things. So you come from a line of nobility or your family was this or that, um, you know, related to this politician or this type of a lineage. And because of that, you deserve something. And so to me, this is a backwards way of looking at it, because if you were privileged in some way, rather than you should get more, it should be that you have the capability of giving more to the world. But I think this is relevant to the mindset we've had and the experience we've had throughout history that not everyone could have a lot. And there were some that would have a lot and the others would work to make sure that some had a comfortable life and most other people did not have such a comfortable life in our more modern type of society. So it was who are going to be those people that deserve a lot, that get a lot. And so to me, again, that's a backwards way, which is also related to the way I think we have success backwards, which is related to that directly, is that successful people are those people who have a lot, who has a lot of money. And you see, and I see all these posts constantly, who's the richest, and usually it's man, because the richest top people are, are men, although uh, not exactly, but the richest ones, I think, I don't know if it's ever been a female in recent history, but nonetheless, um, who's the richest man in the world? And oh, now Elon Musk has a hundred billion dollars more than Jeff Bezos. And it's like, who, who really cares? Um, although actually I do care because when we look at those accumulations of wealth related to a book like this, well, that's something that will make it very hard for us to achieve equality when some people can have so much, but we get so preoccupied with who has so much. And it's not to say people that have a lot don't also help others and do things, but our focus is on who has the most who has gotten the most. And to me, the definition of success should be the other way around. It's who's given the most, who is giving, not just financially, but who's giving to the world the most. What's your contribution to helping? So it's not what you get, it's what you give. That should be our measure of success. But so related to that, this issue of status comes to play in the same way. It's because of who you are, you should get, you know, and we even think about it when you think of status, you imagine, oh, this person is so-and-so, so people serve him or her hand and foot. They bring them things. They don't have to work hard. They don't have to do anything just because of who they are. And so I, I think we, recognizing, and most people think of this, that we need to do away with this type of mindset. There will always be some levels of hierarchies and things that come up, but they can also be for reasons of why people have, what people have done and in certain contexts. So you're in the hospital, everyone should get respect. But yes, the doctors and nurses who are directly working with the patient in a moment of crisis should get some level of uh, extra attention or what they say might go. There's some hierarchy there in that moment. But then when they go to the cafeteria, we would hope that 
it disappears as much as possible. Then now they're just having food and hanging out. That shouldn't be some type of hierarchy. But in that moment, it's in service of the patient. We need some type of hierarchy or some types of organizations and structure in that way where there is some status in that type of a way. But when you think of the types of status that still exist, for example, royal family for, for many people, including myself, we don't need to disrespect any of them in any way, but what does it mean that someone is the queen or prince or something of that nature? And we're seeing the um, the ways that this mindset is changing, of course, along with the horrific history of colonialism. When you've seen recently uh, the royal family, I think it was uh, Prince William and Kate going to uh, was it Jamaica or some countries that they used to and they still have some type of ties to in colonial ways and the people are like what are you doing here like we don't want you here what does it mean you're the prince of our you're our prince or something you're in some country far away you've actually done a lot of damage to our country and our people so what does that even mean but there's some status and so we have to bow to these people and there's certain protocol when you meet the queen that you I don't know, you have to dress a certain way, you have to address her a certain way, you can't look at her this way, you have to answer her this way. What, what does that stuff mean? Why is that the case? Uh, but we have still these lineages or this uh, um, vestiges of these old ways of thinking that I hope we slowly, maybe not slowly, quickly do away with more and more, that it doesn't mean anything. And so in Persian culture, I see it where people will say, you know, oh, so-and-so's, um, I, I kind of joked about this on the cruise, I hear a lot of people, this person's father or grandfather was the Shah's doctor or something, or the Shah's lawyer or the Shah something, and I'm sure he had a lot of staff, but somehow everyone I meet, their family member was somehow serving the Shah in some way, and so because of that, we should treat them differently. No, not at all. I actually remember one time going to some store, and I went right after the gym, um, I was looking to get a watch for myself many years ago, and I was after the gym, and I looked really not great, obviously, sweaty and gym clothes and all that. And this person helping me was really disrespectful, very mean, like would barely even give me, uh, pun intended, the time of day. And and then I was like, okay, then I left. And then I came back th two days later, and I guess in that meantime, someone had told him that my father is Dr. Farhang Lakwi and, you know, all that, uh, that, that that was his son. Um, and this was before I was, I don't think I was even in grad school yet. Um, and then the next time I came, he was so nice to me. He's like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, last time I didn't know, um, you know, your father and, you know, da, 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 like this, I apologize. You know, I was having a bad, I don't know what he said, I was having a bad day and a whole bunch of things of what he was doing. And now he was so respectful. And, and in a way, the way he was so nice and respectful felt kind of good in that moment. But then I thought, I'm like, what the heck's going on here? You know, and it's not that he needs to kiss up to me now, but he definitely should not have been treating me poorly before for no reason. Because no, I'm, I'm just a human being, I was deserving of respect, um, as we all are. So it was just an interesting moment that all of a sudden I had this quote-unquote status to him, and he was treating me differently. Now, of course, it could be multiple things. It's a status, but also maybe he thought I could afford the products he had, whereas before he thought I could not, so he didn't want to give me, again, that time of day. But this feeling of just, I was less than, and now I became worth respecting. I think this is very, very unfortunate, something we should think of, because actually that's another way we show our status in a very ugly way. It's that if people are below me, I don't actually give them full respect because that shows I'm above them. If someone is my quote unquote servant or my no cat or whatever words we might use, 
it's a way that, of course, I'm going to put myself above you because I have to show that I'm above you. If I show myself equal to you, I'm bringing myself down. And even that's actually part of why when we meet each other and some uh, Iranian men, especially, they'll say that basically the equivalent of I'm your servant, I'm below you to try to show that I'm showing respect in a deferential way, which really is usually this meaningless talk that they're saying with a way of maybe just being polite, overly polite in the ways that we do in our culture. But that's why it has that meaning to us. It's like, I'm saying I'm below you. Don't, don't, you know, basically we're saying, I don't, don't think I think I'm equal to you or above you. I'm below you. I'm below you. And that's a way of showing respect. So unfortunately, it could be ingrained in a lot of us, especially older generation, that you should in a way talk down to people who you see as below you and to pay attention to those things, to notice people. Even I, I don't, I've never been to Iran because I was born here, but I hear of people, for example, in Tehran talking about people in other cities or especially in small cities, talking down about them, that we're kind of the real Iranians or we're more advanced or more civilized than those people who are there. So even within our own community and cultures, we can be so um, discriminating, which we see a lot of. And a lot of discrimination comes back to this, is that we're figuring out or trying to figure out or we think we know who is better and who's worse and putting ourselves above one another, which is really just stupid and meaningless. And so we're trying to create status for ourselves because what we think think it will give us. We're also always fighting against this sense of being insignificant. So we're trying to find a way to put ourselves above others. Oh, you know, those people from the (laughs) the da-da-da-da-da, they're not like us. You know, I hear those kinds of things a lot, even from parents that come to see me for their kids, the way they'll talk about, you know, our kids were raised a certain way with certain things and we don't want them to mingle with these other kids or for our son or daughter to date this type of person whatever that means because we are blah 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 and so for me usually when I hear that not that I want to look down on anyone but the lowest I think we can be is when we look down on other people so if you are putting other people down that's when you're bringing yourself to your lowest point not that you elevate yourself by putting others down so this status mindset As I said, I can understand where it's coming from. It still exists to a degree. So yes, if people see you a certain way, you do do still get different types of treatment. But I hope we can be aware that it's not about where you quote unquote came from or who your ancestors are that should determine your value. We each should be judged on what we do as a human being in our life. Again, if you were given more because of your status and your background and you're not doing more, then what, what are you doing? That's actually worse. So you actually should be doing even more if you have those advantages. But we still have the mindset that status means because of who I am, I already get so much. And I hope we can turn that along with the mindset of success. It's about what you give, not what you get that makes you successful. And your status shouldn't be something that you have just because of your genealogy or some kind of status. Try to be a good person and and elevate your character in the biggest way. Give yourself that kind of status internally and externally in how you treat others rather than just having something given to you because of the family you were born into. All right, let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the previous segment, I was talking about status and I, I wanted to move on to a another way that we can differentiate or try to differentiate ourselves and put ourselves above one another and that's dealing with mental health issues and how we deal with them and the reason why this is uh, fresh on my mind I'll I'll share with you so this past weekend uh, we had 
uh, one of our cruises where we had several hundred people really uh, very nice to see everyone there on one of my father's cruises that he does where he does several seminars I got to do a seminar my brother Parham also did in some question and answer segments and things like that it, it was a really good time um, and it was the first time I had been on one since uh, 2020 February uh, close to when the pandemic hit and so also because of that this was the last time or the first time I had done um, public speaking since that time since that February uh, 2020 time and so as a result um, it, it was a cool experience for me to be able to do that to uh, be able to do public speaking um, anyway nonetheless and I wanted to talk about that the talk I did I wanted to do something a little bit different which was to do something more interactive with the audience and to have people share their stories or share some things and I made it clear this is not therapy of course also that um, it is not uh, any pressure on them if at any point they don't want to answer a question or they want to stop they completely can but then I'll ask them some questions focusing on which the theme was going to be about dating and relationships on that aspect of their life I actually first wanted to start with couples eventually we got some couples to volunteer or one couple to volunteer but it started with individuals and so even that beginning part where I asked for volunteers and I understood that it was not a comfortable space for most people to come on stage and to talk about themselves to be vulnerable in that way and so when uh, I asked for volunteers, it took a moment, and then people did come up. And then I started asking them some questions about themselves, what's going on for them, what are they looking for, dating-wise, what has got in the way. And people were listening and watching. Um, and then eventually someone else came up, and then eventually a couple came up. And that's, as I expected, it got more interesting and dynamic when a couple was up, when you get to hear both sides of the story and go back and forth. And what I was trying to do and one of my goals, and I might do more seminars like this in the near future, is to get us to see that we all have things that we are dealing with. And so what I hope to do is to illustrate that we all have stuff, we all have things we're dealing with, and that we actually can laugh about it. But of course, when we're bringing someone up, it's not to laugh at them. It's to laugh with them about our shared humanity and shared human experience that we all have. And so we all have mental health issues, just like we all have physical health issues. No one has perfect physical health. Some might have more severe physical illnesses, medical illnesses, just like some might have more severe mental illnesses. But similarly, even if you don't have a serious medical illness, you have still have something, some parts of your body that might ache or have an injury in the past, something internally, organs, something in your blood that shows up in your blood work. It's never going to be perfect that either is a little bit low or a little bit high. And so similarly with our mental health, same thing goes. We have some issues that are there. So if you tell me you have no mental health issues, I'm really concerned because that just tells me not that you don't have anything going on mental health wise, but you have no awareness of it, which is even worse because that means a problem is there and you don't know. It's like if you're driving a car and you don't know it has some issue, that's a problem. If you know this part of it is a little bit not good, you can try to adjust 
to that. So it's less likely to cause you damage or to get you in some kind of trouble. Similarly, if you understand your own mental health issues or concerns, you can try to, first of all, work on them, importantly, but also in the meantime, work with them or around them or communicate them to those around you so that they are less likely to cause harm in so many ways. So if you don't think you have any mental health issues, you're going to be causing mental health issues for a lot of other people. Or if you don't think you ever need to go to therapy, you're going to be the reason why a lot of other people are going to go to therapy because they have to deal with you and you're not aware of that. So we have to first lose this mindset that because I don't have problems, I'm healthy. No, that's you don't have any problems means you don't see them. doesn't mean they don't exist. And this perfectionism that we can have or the sense that someone is good is good always and in all ways and that no matter what the issue is, we have to recognize is not true. And so having that genuine humility and understanding is very important. And so that's one of the things I hoped to show to the audience that day is that we all have something going on. So hearing someone's story, hopefully you can connect to it or relate in some way, maybe very directly sometimes say, oh, I went through that almost exact thing. Or if not just that you can recognize the human pain that's there. Just like if you watch a movie and someone gets hit by something, we have these reactions because of mirror neurons and the ways that our brains work that we feel some kind of pain. That's why you might be like you make like you wince or you make a reaction to it. You might even pull away when you see someone getting, let's say, hurt or punched or they're getting stabbed. You feel something. You haven't necessarily been stabbed or hurt in that way probably ever, but you can still feel that pain. So when we realize someone is suffering, we can recognize because I can feel physical pain, I can or feel emotional pain in this case, I can relate to their emotional pain as well. So when someone comes up and shares their story, I was very grateful to them for taking that risk and that vulnerability uh, exposure that they were having and sharing that in front of a group of people. I did. I was at the same time mindful not to go too personal or too deep because of that context, but nonetheless, even to come up on stage can be something that's difficult, which... Uh, I brought up this point, which is related to that. So there's so many paradoxes that we can recognize or things that we have to balance. And this is another one of those that as human beings, we have a very, very strong need, desire, wish to be seen as we are, to be fully recognized and seen that someone says, I see you. And we see this with kids sometimes just by showing them, I see you this sense of happiness, but also this calm and peace that they can experience by knowing they're being seen genuinely for who they are. So we all have this even as adults, we continue uh, or continue to carry this with us. However, at the same time, we have this fear of being rejected. And so these two things can be kind of like a push and pull. I want you to see me, but I'm afraid that if you see me, you will reject me. And that's very scary. That can be very painful. And so I protect myself from being seen because of that. So we try to, to figure out this little dance. I'm going to show you a bit of myself and see how you respond. And some people learn ways of dealing with this to either not show it at all to anyone. We wear various masks to the world, um, not even show it to ourselves in some ways, or not even show it to our closest, closest people. And so even in a romantic relationship, you are likely still wearing some type of a mask. Maybe it's not as thick as the ones you wear to the outside world, 
Um, but it is something that you still likely are, are wearing to protect yourself, even from the person who you likely and hopefully feel closest to, but still can be afraid because their rejection can feel the pain, most painful because they see you the most. So we do have this feeling of wanting to be seen, but being afraid of being rejected by what people see. So I appreciated that people were taking that risk, going towards that being seen, but opening themselves up to feeling rejected in whatever way or the anxieties that come up with that. And as people shared what they were going through, people, some people could relate, some people couldn't. And even with the couple, when they came up and and moments, it got kind of funny, the back and forth, and, and it was entertaining. The wife was up, the husband was not uh, there. We didn't know if he was even in the theater or in the room, but then eventually he said, I'm here. And then he walked up kind of like a, a WWE wrestler coming to the ring. And then they, you know, we had our back and forth and it was entertaining in a way, but I made a point, which I thought for me was very important to make that again, I appreciated their vulnerability and openness, uh, just like every individual has some issues. Every relationship has issues. If you think your relationship doesn't have issues, I'm very sorry to hear that because that either means you are not that close to one another or you're not being open and real with one another, that you're hiding the issues. So maybe your issue is actually that you're not that close or you're not that open with each other. But as this couple shared their experience and things they're going through, you know, there's some reactions are like, oh, oh, you know, well, come on, and kind of feelings that people can have, which is the ways we can look at other people's issues like, oh, come on, like, it's so easy do this or why do you do that? Um, but what I always think is important, actually, what I the, the direction I gave to the the group was, look, if you see these two the rest of the weekend, now you, you might think you know something about them, which you do. But I'd hope rather than judging them, uh, and, you know, looking at them a certain way, if that's how you feel, you actually would go more to a place of having more compassion for them because now you know something that they deal with, something that they struggle with and have that type of response to them and hopefully give them that type of a uh, feeling if you do talk to them. And that is a reminder yet again that we never know what people are going through. And the things they brought up, I'll also mention, it wasn't that it was some huge serious issue or something that was ongoing, but nonetheless that we know people are going through things that we don't know about. Sometimes you might know a little bit about it. Sometimes you might know nothing or you're just meeting someone. So, of course, you don't know. But a reminder that people are, are going through things. Also a reminder that you can never judge a relationship from the outside or from some social media post if it's relationship goals. You never know what it's like to be in a relationship. Just because it looks nice or looks pretty or the interaction in the moment looks nice doesn't mean the relationship is good or, or healthy or that you should be jealous of that. You don't know what it's like to be with either of those people or to be in that relationship. But coming back to the sense of all of us having something, for me, it's so important to recognize that and that we don't put ourselves above others in any way. But one of the ways we can try to do that is when it comes to things like mental health. Oh, that person's an addict. And we even have judgmental ways to talk about them, or that person does this, or that person has anger, or that person has this, you know, is bipolar, or that, whatever it might be. Um, Rather than first recognizing I myself have things, I, I talked about it there, I have issues, everyone in this room has issues. I also mentioned I go to therapy, I hope you'll go to therapy because I think it's something very good and can be helpful. So hopefully first we can recognize, look, I have my own stuff, I have my own things, and I would hope I have compassion for this person if they are suffering or struggling in some way. But going back to what I was talking about in the last segment about status, we are often looking for ways to bring ourselves up 
because we have this fear of being insignificant, of being small, of not having power. We're looking for ways to put ourselves above other people. And one of the ways, of course, is to talk ourselves up. That can work. But another way is to put other people down, to have people to look down on. If I have people to look down on, I'm not at the bottom level or I'm higher than them. So I'm higher than someone. And that could be reassuring in the moment, but it's something we want to go away from. And it definitely is a good feeling that we have to be mindful of, that when we put others down, it does make us feel good. So, for example, they do studies where people do some kind of a task and some of them, often it's not even related to how they actually do. It's just the feedback they're given based on the experiment is that they did a really bad job. And then right after that, they have to grade an essay or to give someone else some kind of feedback. And they see a strong correlation that when you've just gotten bad feedback yourself or been made to feel bad about yourself, you're more likely to be harsh on other people, to put them down, to grade them uh, critically and, and all of that. So unfortunately, it does kind of feel good for us in that moment. But if we're mindful, we can recognize that. Okay, I'm putting people down to kind of bring myself up. And you might even recognize if you're feeling worse about yourself, you're more quickly going to look for those things to put other people down, which is unfortunate. But for me, the big uh, unfortunate thing is the ways that we look at mental illness and mental health issues, that we consider everyone who's dealing with them as a them, not realizing that it's all of us. We're all going through something. We're all dealing with something. So if that's something you use to try to put yourself above others, Recognize that likely it means that you are looking for a way to put yourself above others, which itself could be coming from some kind of mental health issue, but that you yourself are dealing with some things as well. Don't forget what you're dealing with. When you see yourself looking out, turn your lens inward to see what am I trying to avoid or neglect about myself or how am I trying to put myself above others. Let's go to another commercial break. Studio number 310-441-0555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this segment, I wanted to talk about a psychological factor, construct, characteristic, which is how much we're thinking of ourselves versus how much we're thinking of others. And like many of these types of concepts, it's more on a spectrum. And also, it's a little bit more dynamic than just on a a spectrum. But we can look at it on a spectrum. How much am I thinking about myself versus others? And also like other characteristics, let's say like introversion versus extroversion, it's not a always type of a thing. So if we say you're more likely to think about yourself or you're more likely to think about others, it doesn't mean you only do that or in all situations. So even someone who tends to think about others more than themselves, if they are, they stub their toe, they will likely focus on their toe that's hurting. Now, actually, they might worry about how loud they scream or how much noise they make that might bother other people, but still they'll likely have a hard time not focusing on themselves in the moment. So this is something I would ask anyone listening to think about. And of course, we tend to not be great judges ourselves at times. We want to try to understand ourselves. Where am I on this spectrum that when I'm experiencing my life in my relationships and different interactions, how much am I thinking about myself versus others? And others can be that collective other of the group, wherever you are, or also in an interaction with a small number of people or one other person, how much are you thinking of them? And so as as is usually the case, neither extreme is going to be healthy. If you're thinking too much about yourself, that's not good. 
if you're thinking too much about other people and not thinking about yourself, that's not good either. And so we can be praised for either of those things and they're not healthy. And if you're experiencing one of them, we often think the healthy thing is the other extreme. We see this with so many things that if people uh, see that, oh, it's too unhealthy to do this, do the opposite. If my parents never praised me, then I want to only praise my kids and only say good things. And even if it's unrealistic, give them positive words, which is not healthy. That actually doesn't help them. So we have to be aware of this. So ask yourself, where am I on this scale? Am I more on the always thinking about myself or more on the always thinking about others? And of course, it can be good to ask those who are close to you because they have to interact with you and experience what it's like to be around you and what they see that do you tend to think of them. And sometimes the analogy I use, you know, we talk about being in someone else's shoes. Some people have a hard time putting themselves in someone else's shoes. So you say, well, imagine what they thought. Or if you're interacting with them, well, what about what they're going through that same thing? And I say, no, I'm, I'm, I'm mad or they, this is my thing or I wanted this, which is not good. Some people, they have a hard time staying in their own shoes. So they're always in other people's shoes and don't have a good uh, strength or a good, um, they're not good at staying in their own shoes and experiencing themselves. Because to have are in an interaction. So if we bring it down to a one-to-one, -one, we need to have some balance. So of course we do need to focus on ourselves because I only I can know what I'm really going through. Even someone who is very, very intuitive and very, very close to us and has known us for a long time, they might be pretty good at reading us. And, and at times, yes, they might notice something we don't notice. Like, oh, you know, I noticed you're kind of in a bad mood. And the person themselves might not realize it for a little while. But overall, they can't know what is going on within us. What are our feelings, our thoughts, our wants, our likes and our dislikes? We are responsible for that. For me to state, you know what, I like this, or I want this, or this doesn't feel good to me. I can't tell you a food tastes good to you, or the temperature is good for you. You can tell me, like, oh, you know what, I'm a little bit cold, or this doesn't taste good, I prefer this. No one can tell you that. And so because of that, for ourselves and for our relationships, we do have to have a certain level of self-focus. It's not good to just be so selfless. So we hear things like this, that we don't want to be selfish, be selfless, which can, which can be true for certain people and especially in certain situations. But overall, if we lose that too much, we become selfless. Our self is less in the relationship and we don't have good relationships and a good experience. So I have to be in touch with what I'm going through. Okay, this is how I feel. And I have to be okay expressing that. Now, of course, the other person in the interaction is responsible to share that with me as well. But I also have to be focused or have a, a level of attention on them as well. Some consideration, some care for that person. What are they feeling? I can also anticipate, you know, so it's not just I'm going to do whatever I want to you and you have to tell me when it hurts you. I have some understanding that, yes, if I step on your foot, that hurts you. I can't say, well, I'll step on your foot. And then once you tell me it hurts, I'll take my foot off. We do have to have some understanding first in a general sense. Um, a topic that came up on, on the cruise as well in my talk was the golden rule. So the golden rule is a starting point of um, do unto others what you'd want to be done unto you or don't do unto others what you wouldn't want done unto you. Uh, and we go a step further, it's do unto others what they want done to them or what they want. So if I'm 
ordering us food, I order what you want to eat, not what I like to eat and giving it to you. If I know you like something better, I should get that for you. And so with our feelings, the same thing goes that as a starting point, if I don't know anything about you, I can use my own feelings as a starting point. Well, oh, I'm kind of cold, so that person might be cold. Uh, I like this song, they might like this song. That would make me sad. That can make this person sad too. But then once I get to know you, I can go further than that golden rule of empathy to the platinum rule or whatever you want to call it, where I try to understand what you are feeling, not what I would feel in your shoes, what you're feeling in your experience. And so if I'm being a part of an interaction and making sure I have some level of other person focus in that interaction, I try to have some empathy, an anticipatory empathy as well to some degree, not just well, I'll do something and then you tell me how you feel, I'm aware of when I'm talking, the impact it might have, right? And you've probably experienced this. Some people, when they're talking to you, you can feel that they don't really think about how you're going to hear that. And they say things totally, uh, you know, clueless to how the person will hear it, how it lands for them. They just say what they're thinking, which sounds good, but to an extreme, it could be harsh and cruel. And there's a way that we can be more kind without having to be uh, disingenuous. So it's not to say lie or sugarcoat, but we can still say things in a more kind way that it's still honest. Uh, we don't have to say it in a mean way and say, well, I'm saying the truth. That's something that people often use as an excuse, especially in reaction to things like quote unquote political correctness or being woke. There's this mindset, well, if it hurts you, it doesn't matter. I'm saying the truth or I'm saying what I think and you shouldn't censor me. Well, it's not just about that. It's that we can say things and express things in ways that are less hurtful or more beneficial to others. And that's something that we all should have that responsibility to do that, to be more kind. So some people, when they talk to you, you can recognize that person didn't think at all of how that's going to sound to me. And that's something that we can think about as I'm talking. What is my partner hearing? And again, if we know them even more, I know that this is a sensitive subject for them. doesn't mean I might avoid it altogether, but I will be more sensitive with the words I use or mindful of that. Or, oh, this they have an insecurity about this. So even though I'm okay talking about this, I know that they are not okay about this. So maybe if the subject is going there in a group, I might even avoid that part of the conversation or I might gear us or steer us away from from that. So we can have a type of anticipatory empathy, which won't always be right, but we can use based on what our experience with that individual. So we can be more in that way, other focused as well. And so two people, when they get together, usually there's some level of balance of this uh, self other focused. And so actually sometimes people who are on two extremes can, especially initially attract one another, someone who is so other focused is going to be a good match for someone, at least initially, who's very self-focused. So if you always want to think about the other person and there's someone who always wants it to be about them, it could feel like it works out. Oh, you always want to make sure I'm okay and I always want to make sure I'm okay. So that works out, at least initially. What tends to usually happen is that because we are full human beings who have our own needs, usually it just doesn't work in the long run. And so someone who's like that, uh, who's very other-focused, will tend to build some resentment over time in a relationship. At times, if they're with someone who also is more other-focused, or at least can be more balanced, they might recognize that the person's not okay and bring it to their attention. But always, I'll put the responsibility on the person themselves to express their own wants, needs, and feelings. We are responsible to express that to the other person. We can't wait and hope that they read our mind or think something is not okay when we haven't told them something is not okay.
So initially that can happen, but ideally you find two people who are more balanced in that way. They are self-focused, but they also are other-focused in a way. So they balance each other out, and that can add up almost to like one, however you look at it, kind of if zero is on one end, one's on the other end. Two people in the middle will both be around 0.5. That can work. An area where this also shows itself is the sexual relationship. So last Monday, got to have sex therapist Dr. Nazanin Mali on the show, and she shared some insights and also some myths and misconceptions people have about sex and sex therapy. So we can see this concept is, is definitely there. And I know there's some people that will say in sex you should only think about your pleasure and not your partner's. Uh, the way I've seen sexual relationships, just like a lot of other aspects of relationships, is of course you know what feels good to you, what you're experiencing, and you have to be in touch with that to enjoy it, but also to express it and to guide things in a certain way. But we have to be mindful of our partner as well and seeing what pleases them. I think, yes, some people can be too much other-focused when it comes to the sexual relationship. They dissociate, they disconnect. They also might not feel good about feeling pleasure based on things they've learned and heard about sex throughout their life. So they're more comfortable making it about the other person. Or they have a people-pleasing side or a side that feels that they're only good if they make the other person happy, so they're focused on that. So definitely we can see people who are too selfless in the sexual relationship, but you also can be too selfish as well. I don't agree with the mindset that no matter what, think about yourself and your pleasure only, or you're only responsible for yourself and zero to your partner in that way. It does not make sense. But when we're having a dynamic relationship or interaction, what's important is that both people are in touch with themselves a lot and also with the other person. This is also true in a conversation when we talk about emotional attunement when we're having that type of emotional intimacy, just like when you're having physical or sexual intimacy, you need to be connected to yourself and to your partner that you're conversing with. And in that way, when you create that type of attunement, you start to become more like one. Yes, you're still yourself and having your experience, but there is this sense of oneness that starts to come about when you have that type of emotional attunement, which can only happen when both people are paying attention to themselves and the other person. You're listening to yourself and the other person. Uh, and even you're listening to them, not just the words they're saying, but you listen to yourself while they're talking so that you can feel your feelings about what they're saying. This is something I think I talked about on the show a couple weeks ago, that when someone listens to someone and they're on their phone, for example, like scrolling and they say, well, I still hear you. I hear the words you're saying. Well, not only are you missing a lot of what that person is expressing, probably verbally, but especially non-verbally and their facial expressions and a whole bunch of things, which is really important. So you're missing all of that, but you're also missing what you are feeling about what they're saying, which you only can experience if you are more present. If you're present, you're going to take in what they're saying more and also take what you're saying or what you're feeling about what they're saying as well to then bring that to the interaction. So it's kind of like even if you were having sex and not really paying attention and just letting your partner get pleased or to please them, that's going to take away a lot of your uh, inclusion in that interaction. We see the same thing happen in conversations. So if you're talking to your partner, you say, well, I hear you, so I don't need to look at you. What's the difference? There's a huge difference. One, what you're getting from them. Two, what you are experiencing, which you then bring back to the conversation that makes it more dynamic. And then three, the type of connection you have when you're looking face to face, as opposed to when you are looking at your phone and they're talking at you.
And there are so many studies that even show that based on how the person responds to how someone tells a story affects how they say the story, how much they get into it, how uh, detailed they get, how animated they get. When we don't get a response, it starts to shut down us and what we are expressing. But coming back to the point I started or the concept I was bringing up, we want to be aware of this dynamic. Where am I on this spectrum of thinking about myself versus thinking about others? There are healthy and unhealthy sides to either extreme that we want to be aware of. As is usually the case, we want to be balanced, but also flexible in the sense that different interactions might call for different things. If you're really sad, then you might need to keep it self-focused, even if you're someone who tends to be other-focused, to be mindful of that. Vice versa, if you're very other self-focused and your partner is going through something, you want to be mindful of how your tendency might be to go towards yourself and to go towards your partner in that moment. Where are you on that? And also there are ways you can try to adjust that, but especially if you're in a romantic relationship, noticing the balances and imbalances that might be there. All right, this brings us to the last break for today. Studio number 3104410555. We'll be right back. Welcome back. In this last segment, I wanted to talk about the importance of friendships. Um, often when people call in, people come to therapy, we focus on other relationships, our family relationships and our romantic relationships. And it's not to say those are not important. They are very, very important. And of course, can have that biggest impact in our lives. And if we think about it, those are the ones where we tend to have our attachment relationships. Of course, with our parents, we have attachment relationships. You don't have them in some ways with siblings, but then we have them in our romantic relationships as well. This attachment bond is formed. And so even trying to understand where this is coming from as, as mammals, we need to have this feeling of bonding both ways that the parent feels the strong bond towards their child and their baby and that the baby feels it towards their parent this feeling of I need you and if I don't have you I don't survive because that uh, quite literally is true if a human baby does not have anyone to take care of them they don't survive you actually need to be a few years old before you could take care of yourself in our case of humans and other animals might be different but there is a understanding that we need that and so when we create a romantic relationship it starts to create that same type of bond and that's why we can have these incredibly strong feelings of of need that i can't live without you it's it's pulling on those same attachment bonds where you feel like you really can't and you literally can't survive without them so you feel that very strongly so it makes sense that these are the relationships we tend to be most preoccupied with they're the ones that make us feel the most good and the most bad. They can make our lives so nice, but also can crush us and hurt us so deeply. So, of course, those are very important. It's not to say they are not. But because of this focus on those relationships, we tend to neglect or forget the significance that still exists when it comes to our friendships. Our friendships are very important. And the reason why I bring this up is that we can neglect our friendships and forget that just like any relationships uh, or any relationship that we can have in our lives, you also need to put time and effort into your friendships to keep them strong and to keep them alive. People can think that friendships just kind of happen 
and, and the rest of the ones are the ones that might need more effort or we have to go on dating sites and go on dates and do all these things to find someone which can be very important but we think that friendships just you know they're either there or they're not or if something works out it does if it doesn't that's just the way it is but we can neglect to recognize the time that needs to be put into that relationship so you know anytime you lose touch with someone um, well you know it's both of you have contributed to not contacting and communicating with one another that's led to that it's not just something that has to happen and if one or both of you reached out you wouldn't lose touch um, and so so much research shows the significance of our friendships or when we look at happiness long term and well-being we see that the quality of relationships is so significant, which of course includes our, our family, and it can include a romantic partner if you have one, but it also includes the friendships you have. Who can you count on? Who can you rely on? And related to that, I'll mention this, that often in therapy, I'll work with people and, you know, of course, I'm happy they have me to talk to about what they're going through, but I know that that's not enough. Therapy can be very helpful, but it's not going to be all the emotional support that we need in our lives. And therapy is also one type of emotional support. I can do things that maybe a, a friend cannot, but there's also things a friend can do that I can't. Spending time in certain ways, connecting in certain ways, providing certain types of uh, love and, and feedback and different things that I cannot provide as the therapist. So we still need that, but very often I see that people don't put time into their friendships, but also don't feel like, well, I, I don't want to burden them. I don't want to bring them down. Or it relates to our notions of toxic positivity or the ways that we can be so biased towards the positive that, well, who, who wants to talk to you when you're depressed? No one wants to hear you when you're down. So I don't want to bring them down or people won't want to hang out with me. So unfortunately, what I see happening so much is that people hang out when things are good and they're talking, but then when one of them is going through a bad time, they start to pull away. They don't want to hang out. Now, to begin with, when we're feeling depressed, we tend to withdraw for a variety of reasons. One, you don't feel as good about yourself, so you don't want to be seen. Two, you don't have as much energy and motivation to do anything, so you're less likely to want to get ready and go out or see someone. Three, your enjoyment of things goes down, down anhedonia, so you don't enjoy things as much as you usually do so things don't seem as fun so you're less motivated in that way too to create plans so for lots of reasons we unfortunately isolate ourselves when we're feeling depressed and i say unfortunately because this can contribute to a downward spiral of depression that you don't feel good you withdraw by withdrawing and being alone that makes you feel even worse you're even more likely to not want to see people and then you feel even worse and that can unfortunately snowball out of control or make your depression even more serious but i am encouraging you as you're listening that if you are feeling down to take the risk to reach out to your friends then of course it could be family members romantic partners as well but also to reach out to your friends at those times and if you're on the other end of it too at that moment to be open to it receptive to it if your friend is reaching out and saying they're down uh, respond to that so first take that risk tell your friends when you're not feeling well if you can the ones you feel like you can and then when you hear it this is also the hard part because often people don't know what to do they feel a lot of pressure that if my friend is down i have to cheer them up uh, if my friend is not feeling good i got to make things right and so don't put that pressure on yourself when your friend is going through something most of the time there's nothing you can tangibly do to change their situation 
and don't feel that you need to just make them feel good immediately. Yeah, sometimes they might call you and want to laugh or they might want to have fun to get their mind off of it. So as is always the case, we want to ask the person, what do they want or what do they need from us in that moment? What would be helpful to them now? So maybe they want to talk about it. Okay. Or maybe they say, I don't want to talk about it. I just want to go have fun or do something silly or watch a funny movie or something to get my mind off of it and get me laughing, let's say, or listen to music or whatever it might be. So ask them what they want, but don't put that pressure on yourself to fix the problem or to fix their mood. Because that unfortunately leads a lot of people to do nothing. They feel kind of anxious. What am I supposed to do? I don't know how I'm supposed to cheer them up. I don't know how to make things right. So they might avoid that person that's feeling down, even though they might actually want to help or do something, not realizing that just being there might be a lot of help. Just being around the person could be all that they need or all they could want from you. So I do encourage everyone who's listening to keep that in mind that if you have friends it's great to have the good times together of course have a lot of fun and joyous memories but really when we show our true value as friends and loved ones is when things aren't going well that's when we not that we're having people there for that reason but that's really when they show their true value is I'm not feeling good who can I call on who can I call to even share that I'm not feeling good who's going to be there for me And so for both sides, to express it to loved ones, find the people you feel comfortable sharing it with, take some risks being vulnerable. And if you hear it, don't feel the pressure to make things good, to either fix the mood or fix the problem, but to go towards those friends or those loved ones in that moment to see how you can support them. And if we think about our relationships and the meaningful ones and why we appreciate a certain friend or a loved one, of course we'll say oh we went here and it was a lot of fun or i remember this night we laughed so much or we did this thing and those things are very important in building that connection but more strongly it's things like oh i remember when i was going through a really rough time and she was there for me or i remember when i didn't know what else to do and i turned to him and he helped me out or he was just listening to me or gave me an ear or was willing to sit with me while i was sad those are the things that we tend to value when it comes to our relationships. But too often we don't give people the opportunity to be there for us and we don't take the time to be there for one another in those ways. Another reason why we turn away from each other during those times is that we can't tolerate our own negative feelings or our own sad feelings. So if I'm going to be empathic, show empathy for someone, I have to connect to that feeling, whatever the feeling is that they're experiencing. So if someone is sad, if someone is crying, for me to be there with them, to sit with them through that, it's going to tug on my own sadness. I'm going to feel a bit sad myself. And because so often people feel that those are the horrible feelings, the bad feelings, anytime you feel it, it's something really bad you need to get away from, they don't want to feel it themselves. So they immediately run away from that feeling. And so unfortunately, if it's a friend that's feeling that way, they essentially run away from them or they try to get their friend to not feel that way. Stop crying. You don't need to cry. He or she is not worth crying over or the situation is not worth crying over. And we think we're saying it for our friend or our loved one, but really we're saying it for ourselves. I can't tolerate this sadness. I can't tolerate the way this feels. Or in my mind, this is a bad, bad feeling 
that I shouldn't have. And so if you're having it, it's also bad and I should stop you from having it and I should not be experiencing it myself. And that unfortunately takes away from the experience. So if we want to be a good friend, we have to be willing to let ourselves feel sad with our friends, both expressing it to them when we're feeling sad, but also feeling it because they're sad and we're sitting with them while they go through it. A good friend allows themselves to feel bad. It's similar to how we are with the world. If you want to be connected to the world and care about the world, it's going to make you sad sometimes. If you want to be connected to and care for your friends or your loved one, you have to allow yourselves to feel sad sometimes about their life too. It shouldn't necessarily affect you the way your life does, but you have some feeling about it. And you have to be willing to sit there while they are feeling bad or sad in order to truly be there for them. And as I'm wrapping up this segment, as I was mentioning before, make sure you put that effort to maintain those friendships. And if you're losing touch, I'm reminded of the book I read recently by Daniel Pink, The Power of Regret. And he mentioned one of the things that people regret often is losing touch with friends or not staying as close to someone and later in life regretting it. And he shared how many people he interviewed or many people who answered questionnaires and asked them why they did not reach out. Very often people would say things like, well, I don't know if the person would want to hear from me. So the sense of they'll be angry or upset or, you know, won't want to hear from them. Uh, and the other one is that it's going to be awkward. And both of those things tend not to be true. Uh, you know, she sh- he shared one story of someone who, um, well, what if the other person reached out to you? And she said, oh, I would be so happy. It would make my day. It would make me feel so good. And he said, well, don't you think it's possible they're feeling the same way if you reach out? And the other thing about it being awkward, that's something we tend to build up in our head. It's usually not as awkward. Or it might be a little bit awkward at first, but it's okay. You get through it. And how sad to think that because of a few moments of potential awkwardness, we avoid reconnecting with someone that we care a lot about, love, and could have a nice connection and relationship with. So our friendships take some work, just like all aspects of life. And just like anything meaningful in life, it's not easy or not always easy and takes some work. But I hope that as much as we focus on family and dating, those are what most of the calls are about on the show. Most people come to therapy about those types of bigger issues. We can often forget the significance of our friendships and how lucky we can be to have good friends, but also how we have to put the time and effort and energy into maintaining those friendships and keeping them strong. All right, that brings us to the end of today's show. Hope you all have a great week and weekend. I'll be with you again next week. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Fadi Dulakwi. Have a wonderful day.